0: We'll pick up where we left off last week in Acts 23, starting in verse 12, and we're going to read all the way through the first 12 verses in Acts 25. So we're going to be covering two chapters of Scripture. And just for some perspective, in these two chapters, we see two years of Paul's life unfold. As you turn to Acts, I'll quickly recap where we've been in the last couple of weeks. Up until chapter 21, we saw what was, for the most part, a very successful third missionary journey from Paul. The gospel was being preached, lost souls were being saved, and churches were being planted. However, when Paul leaves the Ephesian elders to travel back to Jerusalem, everything takes a turn. Paul knew what was coming. From chapter 21 to where we are now, Paul has been brutally beaten. And the only reason he wasn't killed is because he was arrested first. Then Paul gives a defense of the gospel and is about to be flogged by the government Until he reveals that he's a Roman citizen, so he is spared. And last week, we saw Paul before the council. And as he is ridiculed by all, he strategically creates division to get himself out of the spotlight. Then, as Paul's in his darkest moment, all alone, he's met and encouraged to take courage by King Jesus. And what we'll see today is that Paul's persecution and suffering is far from over. My hope for us, though, is that we will see the radical impact the gospel of Jesus has on all people in good ways and bad. And we would see the sovereign hand of God working in all things for his glory. With all that being said, I'm not going to ask you to stand because of the amount that we're reading. But let's read together, starting in verse 12 of Acts 23. Here's what Scripture says. When it was day... The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me, that there would be a plot against the man. I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers... According to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. What a name. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertulus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And, th- and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. Believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. That there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia... They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is anything to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Father, Lord, I pray this morning that you would enlighten our hearts to understand your word. And that as we dig into your word, we would see the gospel in the life and in the persecution of Paul. In Jesus name. Amen. Sorry, that's a mouthful. So I'm not sure if y'all saw it or not in just one reading. Because I definitely didn't. But what happens in this narrative is truly insane. In this text, we repetitively see two things over and over and over again. First, we see the hatred of men. And second, we see the hand of God. My prayer is that this morning we'll see in this text how each of these things point to the gospel as we direct our gaze towards King Jesus. So, The first thing we see, and we see it pretty consistently, is the hatred of men. And to clarify, I don't mean how these men are hated, obviously, but rather that they are haters of Paul and the gospel. I want you to think for a moment about a time in your life where you maybe felt hated, or if you're being honest with yourself, a time where you felt hatred towards someone else. For me, when I was younger, anytime my mom told me no, I felt like my world was going to end because my mom hated me. If I can be transparent... Uh, when I was younger, I was a dramatic spoiled brat most of the time. And my wife might tell you that I still am to this day, but I think I've changed a little bit. Anyways, though, anytime my mom told me no, I would storm off crying and I would be so upset. One time specifically, I asked if I could play a game on the computer. And she told me no because she was working, which is pretty logical. But as any normal person would do, I stormed off to my room, slammed my door shut, locked it. And laid at the foot of it, yelling through the crack that my mom hated me and I hated her for hours, literally multiple hours. I was dehydrated from all the tears that I cried. I was very dramatic. Um, And I'm sure you can probably think of a time in your life, maybe less dramatic, but a time where you felt hatred or you felt hated by someone. But now I want you to take that thought, experience and feeling and multiply it by about a trillion because that is the situation Paul is in right at the beginning of our text. We see that over 40 Jewish men have made an oath that they will not eat and they will not drink until Paul is dead like that's radical. They will go to any length necessary to kill Paul. They try to do it in secrecy and deception. Then they try to call in a favor to the leader to put Paul in a prime position where he can be killed. And for literal years, they're doing everything they can to make sure Paul is killed. And as soon as Felix, the governor, leaves and a new governor enters the picture, two years after this narrative starts, Luke tells us that within within three days of Festus coming into the province, the leaders of the Jews laid their case out against Paul with hopes it would lead to his death. They held this hatred and grudge against Paul for two years. There's no question that these men were radical. They were so zealous to see Paul killed, but why? I believe there are two big reasons that these men were willing to do anything to see Paul dead. First, they hate the message. They hate the message. If I can draw your attention back to Acts 22, Paul is speaking of his encounter with Jesus And Luke tells us that these Jews were listening up until this word is what he says. But what was this word that they listened up to? It's when Paul tells these Jews that God sent him far away to the Gentiles. Now, in our context, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But to these guys, it is massive. You see, in all the Old Testament, the Jews are God's chosen people and the Gentiles were not. And that's just how it was. It was. But when Jesus came, Paul's letter to the Ephesians tells us that he broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. That is a big deal because we are Gentiles and who 5000 years ago would have had little to no access to God like the Jews did simply because Gentiles weren't God's chosen people. And even all throughout the book of Acts, we've seen how the apostles are trying, having to wrestle with the reality that Gentiles can now have the same exact relationship with God that they've enjoyed. So in this moment, why do the Jews here hate this message that Paul is speaking? Because they've taken pride in their religion. They are consumed with themselves because they are God's chosen people, as if God chose them because of how good they are. Now, compare this to the heart and message of Paul in 1 Timothy 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So, Paul says here basically, Jesus called me because I'm the greatest sinner. Actually, I'm so awful that he's going to use me as an example to show how good he is to save and sanctify someone as awful as me. This is radically different from the cry of the Pharisees, and it's precisely why they hate Paul's message. The thing they find all their value and self-worth in, Paul is crushing it with the gospel of Jesus. They believe that God chose them because they are so good. But Paul exclaims that Jesus saves sinners because he is so good. They believe God chose them because they are so good. But Paul exclaims Jesus saves sinners, which is all of us because he is so good. This completely flips their religion on its head. It means this story is no longer about them and who they are, but about Jesus and who he is. The righteous, worthy son of God that reveals to us our wickedness, yet also redeems us unto himself. The one who shows us the depth of our guilt while at the same time pouring out to us the goodness of his grace. This is the message of the gospel, and it's the message that the Jews are so zealously trying to stomp out. Therefore... Because Paul is the mouthpiece of this miraculous message. They will do whatever they must to make sure he dies and the message dies with him, which leads us straight to number two. These people want Paul dead because they hate the messenger. See, when the Jews are making accusations here, they literally say, this man, Paul, he's a plague. (laughs) He's a plague that must be dealt with. And at first glance, it may seem very obvious. Oh, yeah, they hate him, duh. But let's dwell on for a moment how crazy this reality actually is. And to do so, we must remember who Paul was before he met Jesus. He tells us himself in his own words that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. In other words, he was the best of the best as far as being Jewish goes. It's kind of like saying these guys preach. But that guy Tucker, he can preach. Now, I know that's not true. I'm glad nobody said amen. But it was just an example. But Paul tells us himself in Philippians three that he was truthfully, truthfully, the best of the best. He was he was the cream of the crop. In fact, when he met Jesus, he was on his way to beat and kill Christians, seeking approval from his leaders. And on the path that Paul was on, he was fast tracking to become a leader of the Jews When we think about it, really, the could have been in this scenario is radically different from what actually happens. And I don't want us to miss it. In an alternate reality, instead of the Jews persecuting Paul for claiming Jesus, they would be praising him for stomping out the movement. Instead of them losing it when Paul tries to teach about the Lord, they would be longing to hear every word he said about the law. Instead of seeking death for Paul's actions, they would be finding delight in them. Paul would no longer be an enemy with the gospel. He would be a dear friend who's working to stomp it out. But what happened? What has created such a radical change from this imaginary scenario to reality? The answer is simple. One word. Jesus. See, the reason that these men hate the messenger is because he's been radically transformed by the Messiah. Look at the text in Acts 24. Paul says himself, these men who are accusing me, they can't prove anything that they're saying. And if you were to ask them, they couldn't even tell you any wrong that I've done. They don't hate him because he's Paul. They hate him because his treasure is Jesus. The way Paul explains this treasure himself is that when he saw the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, he counted everything as rubbish. For the sake of knowing him. And because of this, the people who once envied Paul no longer want him alive. They hate him. The reality of it is, though, this hatred should not be uncommon today. Those words may seem harsh, but let's look to Jesus's words in John 15. Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. In this moment, we see the words of Jesus showing to be true in the life of Paul. They don't hate him just because. They hate him because he loves Jesus. And Jesus reminds us that if the world persecuted him, the master, then we should expect nothing less than that as his servants. Here's the reality. If you're a follower of Christ, if the world doesn't hate you, if the world around you doesn't hate you, it's probably because you aren't deeply in love with Jesus. Why? Because treasuring Jesus exposes the reality that the thing the world treasures are utterly foolish. The things they desire, the things they pursue, the things they so desperately long for are put to shame by the person of Jesus. So when the world sees you treasuring him, it reveals that all the things they're treasuring are absolute garbage. And that's why they will hate you, because they know they're wasting their life. The reality is the comparison of having anything in the world versus having Christ is like trying to compare the flame from a candle to the sun. It's not even imaginably close. C.S. Lewis said it like this. We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Treasuring Jesus will cause the world to hate you. It's not a possibility. You will be hated. Jesus promised it. But remember what Jesus said right before, before verse 12 in chapter 23 in Paul's darkest moment? Take courage. I'm with you. That is an echo of another promise that Jesus made earlier to his disciples in John 16, In the world and from the world, you will have trouble. They're going to hate you. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In this moment of deep affliction, Paul can take heart because the reason these people hate him has already won the war. Jesus has already won. Paul is just proclaiming his victory. And I pray the same will be true of us, that we would take heart and endure persecution because our king is with us and because our king has overcome. With that in mind, knowing that these men have such an intense hatred for Paul and seeing how they've plotted to kill him several times, it's clear for us to see why these plots failed. The powerful hand of God was at work. Much like in the book of Esther, the name of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit aren't mentioned one time throughout the verses that we read. But even though God's name isn't in it, his fingerprints are all over it. In this narrative, if we read between the lines, we can see a battle occurring between the plot of man the plans of God three different times, the leaders of the Jews are plotting to kill Paul and three different times their plans fail. What we see as we dive deeper into this text is that the schemes of man cannot prevail against the mighty hand of God. Church, let me encourage you. This is great news. No one and nothing can prevent God from accomplishing that which he wills. And in this text, we see the mighty work of God's hand on display in two major ways. First, God is protecting Paul. Now, let me preface this by saying in no way do I desire to articulate a gospel that God is going to give you health, wealth and prosperity, because that just isn't true. There have been and there will be situations where persecution comes and God doesn't prevent the death of his disciples. Look at the disciples of Jesus, 11 out of the 12 were martyred and the 12th was bullied alive and it didn't kill him. So they exiled him. But that still leaves a question of why did God protect Paul in this scenario? The short answer is that God does all things for his glory, which is a good place to start. But that still leaves a question of how is protecting Paul here going to be used for God's glory? And I would argue that it's because God still had a purpose For Paul to fulfill in his ministry. Think back to the words of Jesus to Paul in chapter 23. Right after Jesus tells Paul to take courage. What does he say? He says, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So you must testify also in Rome. Jesus is very clear here that Paul's mission is not over. And there is still work for him to do. So that's the why behind God's protection of Paul. And here's the comfort for us in that truth. In Philippians 1, Paul himself promises us that God, who began this work within us, will bring it to completion. Not might, not probably, he will. Henry Martin, who was a missionary in the 1800s, boldly says it like this I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. The Lord reigns. I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. The Lord reigns. What a confident heart in the sovereignty of God. This is in no way a call to be reckless, but a call to radically trust that God's sovereign hand is in control every day, every hour, and every moment. And he will finish what he started in us and through us. But now that we've seen why Paul was protected by God, Let's shift gears and look at, at exactly how Paul was protected by God. Right after Jesus has reassured Paul of his purpose, the Jews devise a plan to kill Paul and to do it sooner rather than later. Everyone who needs to be ready is ready. All of the pieces in play are perfectly coordinated for an incredible attack and victory. So, what prevents this attack from happening? Paul's nephew who we never learned the name of. Many believe that he was actually a little boy based on the fact that he was taken by the hand and they called him a young man. But that doesn't really matter. What does matter is that God chose to use a nephew of Paul that we will never hear about again to protect Paul from death. I'm not sure if anyone here is into chess, but I'm a huge chess nerd and I'm not ashamed. I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do. And my wife makes fun of me all the time. But the imagery that comes to my head as God protects Paul is that of a chess scene. I imagine someone playing chess. And this person has developed a plan for an incredible attack to create a checkmate on the opposing king. All of their pieces are coordinated, all aiming at the same spot. And in one or two short moves, they will have won the game. However, with the move of just one pawn, one square, their opponent can thwart their whole attack. And all of their efforts will prove to be futile. You see, the pawn is the weakest piece in all of chess, and it's worth the fewest amount of points. But in the hands of a master, just one pawn can be used to completely destroy the attack of an enemy. And that's what we see happening right here in the wake of a plot of over 40 grown men. God shows his supreme power. He says, you know what? I'm going to use this little man, this little pawn over here. And I'm going to use him to throw everything y'all are planning completely off. It's not going to happen. And after God does this, to make a long story short, he uses a Roman soldier named Lysias to be the advocate of Paul to Felix the governor. And then Paul is transported by over 400 Roman soldiers, kept in custody and protected by the Roman military. This should really cause us to marvel at the sovereignty of God. What we see is that God is using the actions of unlikely people to accomplish his unstoppable plans. We see him doing it today and we saw him do it in the life of Paul. And as we see God protecting Paul in this text, we also see that God is empowering Paul. God is empowering Paul. In this passage, we see some incredible boldness from Paul. After he's been saved by his nephew in the Roman government, he's being held by Felix, the governor. And once the Jews are made aware of this, they approach Felix, attempting to persuade him with their case against Paul. Then, as Paul is standing before these men to give an appeal, he boldly refutes all of their claims. Then Felix decides he's going to wait until Lysias arrives to determine the case. However, Luke tells us he also didn't decide because he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. And we later find out that Felix actually desired to hear from Paul privately. Now, imagine this scenario from Paul's perspective. He's privately speaking with the governor of the province after all this has unfolded. The one man who has the power to free Paul on the spot and the one man who has the power to have Paul killed on the spot. This is a huge crossroads for Paul. So what does he do? He boldly proclaims the gospel. Paul doesn't seek to butter up Felix with hopes that he'll let him go. He boldly and precisely shares the gospel with the authority of Christ. He essentially says to Felix, I know you're a judge with authority, but there is one much greater. And you will stand before this righteous judge. We know this because once Paul, Luke tells, Paul talked about righteousness and self-control, which, which Felix was known for not having. And then the judgment that was to come because of his unrighteousness, Luke tells us that Felix was alarmed and sent Paul away. So there's no doubt that Paul was bold in this moment. But why? Because at the very beginning of chapter 23. Paul was so done with all of this that he strategically created division so he could be taken away from the crowd. He didn't want anything to do with it. So how is Paul now being so bold? Because he's been empowered by the father. It isn't explicitly stated in the text, but I believe we can accurately infer that Paul has been empowered by God in two major ways. Paul's empowered by the words of Jesus. And Paul is empowered by the actions of the Father. We've already talked about both, so I'll be brief. Now, I know I've called our attention back to this verse a lot, but it's because it matters. In verse 11 of chapter 23, you, should, you could probably tell me by now, but we see Jesus exhort Paul to take courage. Now, I don't know about you, but if my king, the one that I've lived the, the past almost 30 years for, comes to me in deep affliction out of nowhere and exhorts me to take courage... You best believe by his grace, I'm going to take courage. And that's what we see Paul do right here. In this one verse, we see a huge pivot from Paul's desire to escape the crowd to his bold defense and proclamation of King Jesus in this life or death moment in his ministry. This was largely in part due to the encouragement from King Jesus. And I believe it's also safe to say that Paul was empowered because he saw how God radically protected him from death. Think about a time where someone did something extremely kind, radical, and selfless for you. How did that make you feel? For most, it fills them with joy and gratitude. But it also fills them with the desire to show that same radical love back. Now, in no way can Paul repay God for what he's done. But seeing the radical showcase of God's power to save in this situation must have comforted Paul with the truth that God is with me. He has not forsaken me, and he is still using me. What a comforting reality that empowers Paul to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. In this scenario, Jesus' words and God's actions, though they are different, they both point Paul to gospel truth that helps him press on. The truth of the gospel lights a fire under Paul for the glory of Jesus. And the spread of his message. Here's my question for us. Is that same gospel. Lighting a fire under you. When you see the comforting words of your king. And what God has done for you. Are you overwhelmed with awe and worship? Does it fill you with the need to tell everyone. About how good he is. Because here's the reality. If you have Jesus. And you have nothing else. You have everything. Do you really believe that? If your whole family was taken from you, all your money, your house, everything, but you still had Jesus, would that be enough? If you really believe it, then run hard after Jesus. The writer of Hebrews gives us a great exhortation, which is where we'll end. In Hebrews 12, 1, he says, Lay aside every weight, and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God the writer of Hebrews gives us two imperatives in these verses lay aside every weight and sin and run if it isn't helping you run hard after Jesus then put the weight down don't cling to something that Satan is trying to use to damn your soul. And number two, which is our fuel for running and our fuel for laying down everything else. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. When you're debating whether or not you should let that thing go in your life that you know isn't good, but for some reason you still want to cling to it. Look to Jesus always in all circumstances and everything you do look to Jesus see his beauty his power his love his grace and his victory and as you look to Jesus I'm confident that whatever you're holding on to will instinctively fall out of your hands as you lift them to worship your king so look to Jesus however for those of you who aren't following Jesus I know there's some in here. And for those of you who aren't running this race, I want to say the same thing to you that Paul said to Felix. There is a holy, righteous God. And because this God is righteous and holy, the standard to know him is perfection. Perfection. Only a righteous life can attain a relationship with God. Which is really bad news. Because you will never measure love. There's no good you can do to pay the debt that you owe to God for your sin. You are a person with no hope. You have no hope. But this holy, righteous God is also a God full of love. And He knew that you could never fulfill the standard of holiness and righteousness. He knew you would never be able to make your way to him. So in great love, he made his way to you. Jesus, the God man, came and did the only thing that no man could ever do and lived a perfect, righteous life. The life that is required for holiness. Yet when he lived this life, he was punished as if he didn't. As Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God for sin was poured out on the sinless, spotless land. Then after Jesus died, three days later, he did again what no man could ever fathom doing. He rose from the grave victorious over Satan, death and the dominion of hell. Now, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, you can trust him. You can have a relationship and stand before this holy, righteous God, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And as Christ's righteousness is given to you, your punishment for sin is given to him on the cross. The most radical exchange in history. So, the only question that still remains for you. The unbeliever is, will you trust him? Will you trust? trust him. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. Will you trust him? Church, the world hated our king. They hated him. They killed him. And the world will hate you. But just as Paul did, let's lay aside everything, count it all as rubbish, and let's look Jesus, look to Jesus, no one else, look to Jesus, our risen Savior, as we run this race for the glory of God. Endure the hatred as we rest in His hope.